lot of stuff. Looks like third time's a charm. Mm. Three is a magic number. The third time's a charm. 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 Hello and welcome to Third Times a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. This is episode 29, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Welcome to Third Times a Charm. It's December. I'm here with a holiday movie? Hmm, I guess you could say so, but which holiday? Halloween or Christmas? I mean, this is most definitely a Christmas-themed horror film, so I guess you could watch it either month. But I've decided to make it my December movie. And to join me, since this is uh, a bit of horror here, I have returning, no, not my unofficial co-host, Brian Late Night Rodriguez, who, you know, he's my unofficial co-host. So he's not here every single show, although he had a great run. But I bring back my horror consultant, Dan of the Dead Cologne. We watched at least three out of the four, five, six Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. It's a deep franchise, believe it or not. I was kind of surprised to learn, and even had a remake a few years back. But I gotta say, the Santa Claus Killer, it's a really crazy, iconic kind of thing going on there, and we get into it. It was a lot of fun. Um, It was great to have Dan back. So, you know, without any further ado, you know, grab your Santa hat, grab an axe, and go chase naughty people with it? I get, I don't know. We'll get there, but here we go. Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 3. Santa's watching, Santa's creeping, now you're nodding, now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. There might be tree for you in Santa's bag of toys. But Christmas won't be fun and games for naughty girls and boys. Santa's watching, Santa's waiting, everybody's celebrating. Did you do your best this year? Christmas to you, Dan. Welcome back to Third Time's a Charm. Thank you for joining me tonight. How are you? Ho, 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 Mike. Glad to be back. Have you been naughty or <laughs> have you been nice? Well, you know, every year I feel like uh, as we get closer to Christmas that my, my net worth is uh, more on the naughty side. But, you know, mm. every, every Christmas I end up with presents in my stocking. So maybe I'm not the best judge of that. If I'm a betting man, let's say I'm, I've been nice this year. Good, because we wouldn't want to visit from either of these brothers that this, uh, at least the first three movies in this series comprise of. Today we are talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Uh, Dan, it's a little strange to have you here. You're my horror consultant, but the, the Christmas season. What are you doing here? The fact of the matter is there are so many Christmas-themed horror movies out there. 
that happens to be six in the Silent Night, Deadly Night series. Uh, five in the original run, one from 2012 that was sort of a reboot, I guess, just called Silent Night. Mm-hmm. But um, here we are tonight. Geez, Dan, have you seen these films before? Have you seen any of these in this series? How familiar are you uh, as a fan of horror, as a fan of the holiday season? Yeah, so I'm intimately familiar with the original Silent Night, Deadly Night. It's a, an annual staple in my uh, movie watching every December. I, I pop it in. I love it. I love it more every time I watch it. And when you asked me about doing Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, it occurred to me that it was the only one of the franchise I had seen up to that point. Yet I don't come across the sequels in my wandering through streaming services. So, um, you know, I just never, it never uh, crossed my path. So you asked me to do this episode, uh, gave me an excuse to find them. Last week, I watched the first one and then I followed it up with uh, part two. And then last night, I watched Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, and I do intend to watch 4 and 5. I believe they are both on Vudu for free. And uh, if I can find Silent Night, Silent Night Deadly Night, the uh, the remake, I would love to watch that as well. So really, I'm mostly familiar with that first one, and the the rest are all new to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. Like, uh, I, I'd only seen... I'd actually seen the first two, but... You know, technically, I guess that means I've seen one and a half. Right. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute. This is my first time seeing part three. Researching it for the show is when I discovered there was a four and a five, and then the subsequent sort of reboot. Right. I'm actually a little more um, interested in parts four and five just because of the casting alone part four has reggie bannister and clint howard and then uh part five has mickey rooney and oh and and and, um maude adams who is one of the greatest bond girls of all time so just based on cast i'm more excited about silent night deadly night four and five yeah that that first one's truly great i mean you know like it's not hey i wouldn't say it's technically great i mean it's like a it's a it's a really fun grindhouse horror that delivers and it's perfect that it's like holiday themed you know i feel like eli roth's thanksgiving trailer is sort of a riff on the idea of like silent night deadly night oh totally and it's terrific that first one is just like so bonkers yes and it's incredibly confident in every decision that they made like it feels fully realized and you know maybe it's not for you I I don't feel like I could recommend it to a lot of people but for the people who would get down on that sort of thing I think that it's one of the best holiday horror films around yeah I think the only thing keeping it from the ranks of something like Halloween especially at the time is just the money maybe behind it or something you know say like maybe the look of it it just doesn't quite have the production quality Oh, for sure. And it and it, it doesn't do anything new. It kind of takes established tropes and, th- and and spins it into sort of a holiday kind of uh, version of all those things. Whereas I think Bob Clark's Black Christmas is a legitimately ingenious slasher film that happens to be set at Christmas, if that makes sense. Silent Night, Deadly Night is more like, let's make a, a horror movie about Christmas instead of setting at Christmas. Yes, truly the the psychosis of the killer's nature is spawned, you know, from the fear of Santa, from the fear of of Christmas and all all of the the iconography of that is what triggers him and, and sets him off. 
And that movie introduces us to the brothers Billy and Ricky. Uh, the first one is mostly about Billy. The boys, like, they grow up in an orphanage because their parents were murdered on Christmas Eve. Go see that first movie. It's terrific. And then in the second movie, we follow Ricky, the other brother, being sort of, like, interrogated for most of the film. And, Dan, what were your thoughts about this when you saw this for the first time? Had, had you ever seen anything like this before? Literally, the first hour, maybe, of this movie is footage of the original film they're just showing the first movie again so yeah so this i was thinking about this as a franchise i mean i've only seen three so far but they've gone from like original to clip show to paranormal plot point really quickly like other franchises take a long time to get to these moments right out of the gate you know part two is essentially a clip show and if you're there for some violence and mayhem it it is in there but you have to wait about 45 minutes which is about half the runtime of the whole movie which i actually read about after the fact that when they had the final cut all done the the runtime was still too short so they tacked on another 10 minutes of credits at the end oh my gosh amazing to get it up to about 88 minutes so i would say that a good half of this movie is just all replayed footage from that first movie. Like, almost every major plot point, and then some. Even events that the character wasn't even there for are being recalled. (laughs) Right. We're supposed to believe that Ricky, as a a newborn infant, remembers the night his parents were killed by Santa Claus. Like, come on. Or when the two cops accidentally bust into the wrong house and almost shoot the dad, surprising his daughter for Christmas at Dressed as Santa. The weird thing is, is that the setup is not a bad one. I mean, at the end of the first movie, Ricky goes through a trauma at a pretty uh, impressionable age. So it's conceivable he might turn out to be a little bit of a psychopath as an adult. But why does he need to recount the entire story of his brother killing a bunch of people in a Santa suit? I guess they, they, they just didn't have enough of a script. And they just I guess they thought it didn't matter. They would just roll ahead with it, fill it with repackaged material, and call it a movie. What almost kind of like is more baffling is like this seems to be around the time of VHS and stuff. So like I could understand other movies and, you know, maybe a decade earlier doing something like this and being like, oh, yeah, you haven't been able to see the original since it originally was in theaters. But this generation like might even own a copy of Silent Night, Deadly Night 1. They got it like a horror con or something like that. So it's even more baffling. But I'd have to say it's almost worth the entire thing is almost worth it strictly for one moment in the in, at the end of the movie when Ricky finally goes on his shooting spree. Garbage day. Garbage day. So like the whole thing is, you know, the brothers want to they kill naughty people. But in the end of this one, he's like walking down the street and a guy's literally just bringing his garbage out to the side of the road and he just yells garbage day and shoots the guy in his own driveway. Yeah, at least you can say about what you can say about Billy is that he had a moral compass, whereas Ricky it just is intent. He just wants to cause mayhem, you know, like he's no other purpose but that to kill a bunch of people for no reason. And I knew we were in a little bit of trouble when he didn't ever don the Santa outfit, right? If I'm not mistaken, like in in two and definitely in part three. For I have. I have a theory about why, but like he does not dress up as Killer Santa. Well, he does it uh, at the very end for no reason whatsoever. That's the thing is that I think at some point the producers or the director said, you know, we got to get him into a Santa suit for when he faces Mother Superior at the end of this thing. So there's no real logical reason for it, but they do include it in the very last scene. I think just because they were obligated to. 
you know, if you ask me, is too little too late. And meanwhile, part three feels no sense of obligation for that at all. But we'll, we'll, we can get into that. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into this. I'm, I'm going to just quickly sort of recap the movie. That way we can uh, jump around and talk about anything we want. Um, as I just try and give an overview. But bear with me, folks, because this movie is batshit crazy. It starts with a, well, Okay, so just try and get this straight. (laughs) It starts with a blind girl named Laura who's having a dream therapy session with a guy who plays Ben Horn on Twin Peaks. I just call him Dr. Horn the whole time. And in her dreams, he's seeing the memories of Billy or Ricky. We're not quite sure yet. And then she like wakes up and she's blind, but she can see in her dreams. And it's some kind of weird therapy. And we find out that this doctor has saved Ricky's life from the previous movie sort of like you know you can see his brain in a in a clear dome instead of his head it's very bizarre <laughs> this movie takes an incredibly sci-fi turn we find out that Laura is technically psychic Laura and Billy develop a psychic link not unlike Ray and Kylo Ren in the last Jedi and Laura is going to her grandma's house with her brother and his girlfriend and you know basically Billy uh sorry Ricky Ricky wakes up from his coma and uh, in a very Frankenstein zombie-like fashion kills his way to grandma's house in order to get to Laura. Uh, That is sort of the the gist of it. We can take it from there, but this movie is way more supernatural, way more science fiction, way less Christmas, almost to the, like, my my big thing was like, I feel like they found this script and they're like, let's turn it into a Silent Night Deadly movie. That is exactly what I had said to a few people today, that it, it, I would not have been surprised to find out that somebody had a script lying around and the producer saw it and said, oh, we can make this work. And then weaved in the necessary elements to make it a Silent Night, Deadly Night sequel. But it turns out that's not the case from some research I did as well. Wow, that is crazy to hear about. I mean, th- this is definitely more along the lines of like a PG sort of horror film. Like I talk about this a little bit on other podcasts and once or twice here, but this is something you would show to like, you know, a preteen or something. You know, it's like a gateway horror film because all of the violence is essentially cut out sure. of this movie and yeah, really leaves it kind of hollow. There was a point about halfway through or maybe a little more than that when they are at grandma's house and Laura's brother's girlfriend takes a bath and I was like, we see nudity for the first time and I and I let out an audible like, oh my God, finally. You know, just something that made this an adult horror film. You know, like I felt like it took forever just to get to what I saw as identifiable slasher tropes. I feel like you zeroed in on something I was going to wait a minute to get to, but like that. That is the focal point for me of this entire movie is that bath sequence because like they show up at grandma's house she's nowhere to be seen it's christmas eve the guy's girlfriend decides that she's gonna just take a bath at grandma's house and he he joins her remember (laughs) yep and and this guy's just covered with hair like he is the hair he's like a wookie this guy no you know sorry man but like (laughs) it was jarring and it is like the most sort of forced and awkward bath scene sex scene it was just so weird well mostly mostly because it feels shoehorned in like narratively there's no reason for that scene um it doesn't make any logical sense it was the moment where they were like okay we need to have some nudity in here here's a good spot to put it you know like there's no no, there's no reason for it where's grandma oh that should be like they should be looking for grandma everyone yeah this movie is just so frustrating because i i actually quite 
like how it starts off where it starts in a dream and she's having like these horrible christmas dreams and she's like running around this like white these white hallways and it's sort of tim burton-esque i guess or what would come to be known as like a kind of tim burton-y and she like wakes up and you find out that like this is some kind of like nightmare on elm street dream therapy uh, movie you know and i'm like well this is unexpected to the extreme like this is way beyond anything like the previous movies didn't try and get like this plot heavy or story wise you know like they were so much more basic and and straightforward and this is trying to be like one of those 80s sort of i don't know sci-fi horror like hodgepodge movies (laughs) yeah i mean it was it came out in 89 by that point we had gotten carrie we had gotten friday the 13th part 7 we'd had some nightmare on elm streets and i think that those were sort of the thing at the time yeah you have this psychic heroine right fighting like uh, just like an evil force like he's very much like jason Voorhees. yes i did get a that friday the 13th one what was that with tina yeah, that the, was the, she was the psychic. Yeah, that was part seven um, with the psychic. Yep, or she's more uh, telekinetic. She's telekinetic. Yes. Sorry. Right. Right. Because she, she's like throwing stuff at Jason with right. her mind at right. the end of that one. <laughs> yeah, and that one even has like the uh, the doctor throughout the whole thing, and yes. he's very similar to the doctor in a, this. A very possessive well. doctor who's pretty overbearing, may not have his patient's best interest at heart. They're very similar. I thought her Braille watch was really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really interesting. But Laura starts to have like psychic visions, sort of like The Shining, I guess. Like you mentioned Carrie in a way, but like I was getting kind of a Shining vibe. Yeah, off of her. she starts to have premonitions about those around her, and she can sort of predict these murders that have not yet happened. And apparently, the Dream Link is what wakes up Ricky as well as a sort of lost, drunk Santa in the hospital who, like, stumbles into Ricky's room. And it's, it, like, we get Ricky POV, which we'll have uh, several times in this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. And they'll just sort of, like, skip right over, like, the actual kill shots right. and everything. Right. It's so frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> so frustrating, especially because that first one, so many impalements, so many severed heads. We'll get one severed head in this, but it's, like, the after shot. It, you know, it's more of, like, played as a joke. Right. Where it's, like, propped up on the table with a phone to its head, someone on the other line going, like, are you there? <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I mean, this movie, like with all the setup and stuff, like it base, it's pretty basic from then on in. It it just becomes they're going to grandma's house, and like since Ricky can read her mind, he has like the coordinates and and just tries to. It's very Red Riding Hood, right? Yeah. It's so so I I noticed that the actual psychic element of the movie is really only it only really only serves to make the story function at its at its basic level you know it's it's not like they explore that in any way it's we need ricky to show up at grandma's how do we do that forgive the expression but if this were real life there'd be no reason for these characters to cross paths right like there's it it doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense so the psychic link is only ever used to facilitate what would otherwise be completely ridiculous plot points and they end up being themselves ridiculous anyway. So I don't know why they didn't just go like whole hog, really play up the psychic aspect of it, 
let her get like let us see what she sees and then let 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 uh, us see what he sees and what he knows about her like we don't get really much of that at all it's just sort of mentioned it's established mentioned a few times and then we have the finale at grandma's i would have liked to have seen more of that at play considering that was the major element that was added to the movie like that's the thing like i found it amazing that her character turns out to actually be psychic and that's why the doctor wants to use her for his experiments because she'll have a higher success rate or whatever right and yet she never uses her ability for basically like she never gets control of it you know what i'm saying like she never learns to aim it oh and it it never impacts any other part of her life and at the very end when she like sees her dead grandma and her dead grandma's you know like use your power like she doesn't (laughs) right it's so strange like she ends up getting overpowered and everything it's not like she you know becomes neo yeah that convenient like superpower she has never ends up being the thing that helps her win in the end and she ends up being the final girl pretty much by random happenstance like by accident through no act of her own does she become the final girl of this movie so she has a pretty interesting backstory as well i want to ask you a question about so The story goes, so she and her parents were in a plane crash. She survived. Her parents died. She was put into an orphanage. My question is, did she become blind from the plane crash, or was she blind previously? And if she has a brother and a grandmother, why was she put in an orphanage and didn't go live with the grandma? I'm so confused when they start bringing up her backstory. It's like, why did they even bother? Right. Yeah. None of it makes much sense at all. I think that could be attributed to the fact that the script for this movie was written in about a week. But you would figure that they would try and have her trauma be something about Santa as well you know like she was blinded staying up at Christmas trying to see Santa come down the chimney and like maybe you know like a something there was a fire you know I don't know yada 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 that's the thing this movie never really embraces the fact that it's part of a Christmas horror franchise everything that's Christmassy about it seems like it was tacked on after the fact and which is one of the probably the most disappointing thing about it for me because as as ridiculous as it is I do enjoy it a fair amount i just wish that they had really committed to the christmasy parts of it well that that i agree with you like there is a certain charm and i and i i do kind of like this movie and it has in its own way like i just wish maybe it wasn't a a better watch out silent night deadly night three like there's a really cool interesting look with with ricky in this but it's you know it's not the same actor you know it's completely unbelievable like as soon as you see him it's like you have to suspend your disbelief you know so far the guy looks like the cover of a 50 sci-fi novel like he literally is like has a mars attacks dome brain going on with his head i mean i love it but I bought Ricky in this movie when his look was just in a dream sequence at the beginning. I was like, there's like, like this has to be a dream. And sure enough, it was a dream. And then she wakes up and he actually looks like that. He has like a remote control, like, and all these like computer parts, like beeping and whirling and whizzing out the back, like an antenna. I I was just like losing it. I was just like, why? What even killed me more was like the first person he gets is the drunk Santa. He'd never puts the Santa costume on. You know, I was like, for sure, they're not going to keep that effect up the whole movie. They're going to want to hide it not with a santa hat they don't yeah did you have like a like a favorite part or a least favorite part i guess i mean anything about this one that you had in your notes that like really jumped out at you 
Aside from the bath sequence. <laughs> I really, I, I did enjoy the, the girl who played Laura. I thought that her character was probably the best in the whole movie. I think that maybe the actress was not as good as she could have been, but I was trying to look at her material and imagine like if, if a better actor were, were inhabiting this character, is the character pretty cool? And, and and I did think so. Like she looked very much like Jennifer Connelly, almost as if they couldn't afford Jennifer Connelly. So they got this girl to play Laura, you know, and I thought Laura as a character in a movie like this, you know, she really um, is pretty well fleshed out. She's interesting. She's sympathetic. The only thing that sucks is that the, the writers sort of failed her in her, her backstory. Um, they didn't give her a whole lot to do with her ability. But, I mean, she's pretty proactive, this whole movie. So I, I really liked her. Yeah, I definitely agree that she had, like, a Jennifer Connelly look going. I even think, like, the girlfriend and her probably auditioned for the same role. I, I love her blind acting if you if that's what you call it i'm not sure uh but like it's very convincing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i felt uh without going like too far you know she never like trips over a stool or anything you know like they never really call it out too far but there's clever stuff like the braille watch and like her with her her daredevil cane and everything yeah she i thought she was really good at playing someone who was blind down to like little things like filling a glass of whiskey you know she puts her finger over the lip of the glass to you know when she's filling it just those little touches I thought really sold the blindness and of course she would know every inch of her grandmother's house so you know when she put the cane away and just started moving around freely like makes sense I'll buy that so I thought that character was probably the strongest part of this whole movie I was a little bit underwhelmed with how little like, or how underdeveloped Ricky's character was considering how major he is in this franchise yeah well I feel like they do like one quick thing when the detective comes in where he sort of recaps the last two movies and we get a little bit of those clip show moments uh, from the first movie in some of the dream sequences mm -hmm. they're sharing as well. But I feel like, yeah, like Ricky's pretty much established. Like he's just a, a zombie in this movie. And like I was psyched because Bill Mosley plays Ricky. And, you know, we know Bill Mosley from Rob Zombie these days, but he had just done Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 earlier in the decade. And this is where he was in his career in 1989. That's insane. Crazy. Oh, man, he's a great, I think he's like a great actor, actually. Yeah, he's an incredible character actor. It's, there's no wonder that Rob Zombie, you know, start, started using him again for, you know, for his movies. But to see him reduced to pretty much nothing, to this, like, mindless Frankenstein was really disappointing. They could have, I thought for sure they would have gotten, like, Kane Hodder or someone who's playing Jason before to, like, do this. It's, like, a total waste of his talent because he's known to be, like, pretty expressive and, like, flamboyant. Like, I don't know, I just see him as, like, always, like, really wild and stuff. And to see him so tame here was just kind of a jip. Yeah. And again, I just to reiterate, you don't see, like, any of the kills. Right, <laughs> right. So the, the dialogue, some of it was really entertaining. One of the things I like most about uh, Silent night deadly night and the se the first sequel are some of those ridiculous lines of dialogue that are just just make me laugh um like garbage day as silly as that is i i love it garbage day like the santa claus that he kills towards the beginning of the movie he's sort of sort of drunk and he and ricky is still is sort of in his comatose state just about to emerge like who's your favorite singer perry coma lol <laughs> um <laughs> 
And I love just the um, brother, uh, Laura's brother, towards the end when you think he's dead, but he's not. And then he comes in with a shotgun and says, hey, bobblehead, is it live or is it Memorex? Which I don't know what that means. But (laughs) I mean, I understand that it's a slogan for Memorex. But like in that context, I have no idea why he says that. No. Oh, yeah. It is way out of context. No, it's not like he's like killing a robot or an android or something where it might make more sense. You know, (laughs) Right. Like, it's just those ridiculous comments. The dialogue is still really entertaining in this movie. So one of my favorite parts, or maybe my favorite part of this movie, is um, when the detective and the doctor basically go to Grandma, try to get to Grandma's house before uh, Ricky shows up and kills everybody, um, which they're too late for. <laughs> but, like, it, it's, like, the most insane coupling of characters it's like one of those great moments in your screenplay where the story takes over and it's like you've introduced these characters and they've wound up together in a scene right and it's like what the hell do i do with these two characters after they've sort of done all their exposition and there's a moment where the doctor picks up a cell phone right Mm -hmm. and this is 1989 it's the it's the the cop right he's driving and he's got the cell yes i'm sorry yeah the detective, yeah, he picks up the, the cell phone. And then there's a scene where the fucking cop is, like, trying to sell the doctor on, like, buying a cell phone and, like, getting a plan because, like, if he does that, he'll get money off of his cell phone plan. And I'm like, what fucking year is this? 1989? <laughs> like, this movie is so prescient when it came to this technology. It was blowing my damn mind like that was the most impressive thing like it almost made me go like all right i sort of forgive you for not uh showing me some of those kills because obviously your brain was somewhere else like it was definitely more like you know in line with like trying to write science fiction or predicting like the future and stuff but like that was amazing to me i don't know that i agree that it was amazing i think that to have those two characters together in the same scene you have potential because so both of them are really great at chewing scenery throughout this movie the doctor i found to be incredibly skeevy like a lot of 80s 80s doctors in like horror movies and sci-fi movies and then the, the detective just likes to like he's this sort of guy who will just go off on anything likes to hear the sound of his own voice doesn't really matter what he's saying he's just happy to just talk and then you got these two characters in a car and the thing they talk about are mobile phones <laughs> and i'm like they could have talked about anything they could have made that scene so over the top and ridiculous and entertaining. And the conversation they end up having, to me, was just so pedestrian that I could, I was like, this is a wasted opportunity. Well, that's what, that's why, to me, it was, like, so impressive was it, it should have been cut. Like, there's no need for that to be in the movie whatsoever. Oh, 100%. But it, in a strange way, balances out the ridiculous sort of look of Ricky and the nature of the rest of the film and stuff and says, like, no, this, like, is happening in reality. Like, this is mundane <laughs> sort of, like, fill-in-the-blank bullshit that they're trying to do everyday life kind of stuff. And it, like, to me is the best part of the movie. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, I get that. I, I totally understand you, where you're coming from. I think that if these characters had been established as more realistic characters, the scene would have played better. But because they're so over the top from the beginning, that this was just, for me, just the complete opposite of of what I wanted when we finally got them in the same room together. Oh, unbelievable. Just so, uh, this movie just, like, surprised me everywhere along the way. Like, that's why I feel like it has its merit, like, and, you know, it's doing its own thing for sure. And I definitely wanted something else, but, like, it's so, it was so unpredictable and, like, so 
outside the box and i just got to give it credit where it's due yeah, yeah i said i said out loud see i watched it with um with my girlfriend who had not watched part two with me, but she has seen part one. And um, so you know, I sort of bridge that gap, that short gap between uh, one and three in like five minutes, gave her the, the quick, all right, here's what you missed previously on silent night, deadly night. Then we watched this and like, she just didn't really know what to make of it. But I, I said out loud, I was like, trust me, this is better than the second one. As wild as that may sound, it is better if only because it's not boring. I'm enjoying the ridiculousness of this thing. And she's like, all right, do you say so? You know, <laughs> she doesn't watch a lot of these kinds of movies with me. But yeah, I figured I'd take her on the ride. I think you hit on something there, too, is like... Um... This is, you know, and this is the nature of my show and everything, but like we're at we're at part three of Silent Night, Deadly Night. And like, how many people do you think came back after the second one? Like, like seriously, didn't feel sort of gypped or ripped off or whatever. Like, who's making it this far to begin with? Real sort of horror hounds, people like digging in the crates, looking for stuff that might not have been as seen or as popular that, you know, you want to, you know, a whole new movie filled with references now that you can whip out at horror cons or something like that you know i feel like this is more of a deep cut right so sure. like if you've seen you know i talk about this with brian a lot when he's on trying to indoctrinate him into the world of horror like there's a whole spectrum of horror films from like funny to dramatic and everything mm -hmm. and like this is this is somewhere on that spectrum where it's like sci-fi horror comedy maybe sort of like not quite sure what it's doing but like success successful in its own right kind of maybe not as part of the franchise as a whole but like has definitely like gets away with like a lot of uh, moments even though once again just to reiterate we we literally see like no kills until like the very end when uh, ricky just like falls on a piece of wood in, in terms of the, the the spectrum of horror this definitely falls more in the comedy camp there's really not much legitimate legitimately scary about this but me personally, I'm up for anything that is going to be entertaining. You know, I, I so rarely find myself legitimately scared anymore because I watch so many of these. That oh, preach, brother. You know, like, I don't judge a horror movie based on its ability to scare me. But if I, if I have a good time watching it, it doesn't matter if it's scary. Now, that might affect who I recommend it to. But I mean, there's definitely a place for this sort of a movie that, I mean, it's technically like, I would not say it's a good movie, but it is for a specific type of audience. It's really fun. And if you're up for a movie that is just gonna throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, it's not a bad way to spend 90 minutes, in my opinion. I have to wonder what it was like when this came out in 89. Like the people who had felt ripped off after part two, they had paid money to basically see the movie they had already seen, plus another half hour, right? So as an audience member, what do you do in that situation? Uh, I feel very fortunate to live in, in 2019 where they have all been made. And now I know, oh, there's a, they made it to a four. They made it to part five. Now there's a, a remake, you know? So I can go back and appreciate these out of context, you know? And that's, and that's like, I, I would love to know. I would love to talk to those people who, who saw part two and then just didn't stick around for the rest because I think they'd really be missing out on a pretty insane ride with this one. See, that's the thing. I, I, my expectations, not that they were low, they were just very 
different. Like I sort of forgot like the like how far you could push the boundaries of certain franchises. Like this most sort of made me think of Happy Death Day. Have you seen the second one, Happy Death Day to you? I have not seen either of those, but they they are on my list to see. I'm not going to like spoil them or anything. Let's just say the first one is like very much like a straight horror film and the second one they sort of do more they experiment sure. more. I guess, with the genre and the tone, you know, kind of like this did. And I wasn't expecting it to have the flexibility it does. And I'm not saying it's all successful, but like, like you're saying, like they're throwing everything at this and seeing, you know, what rises to the top. And you're right, like it is a comedy and I was expecting it to be more of a straight horror thing because although the first two are funny for reasons, they're not played for laughs. But this, I had trouble readjusting myself the whole movie to realize that this is trying to play a lot of this for laughs. And I I didn't really realize that until it was too late, I guess. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know how much of it was intentional. I think there's a fair amount of this that felt to me as though it was a product of being rushed. They they wrote this movie, they they shot it very quickly, and then they rushed it to theaters. I think it made it to theaters, but they, they rushed it to release whether it be theaters or home entertainment. So I'm not entirely sure how much of it was intentional. I think the actors are there playing it seriously, which is why it works, because there's nothing worse than a movie that wants to be funny and the actors are in on the joke and they play it that way. You know what I mean? Like those movies never work. So whether intentional or not, these actors are committed in the scenes that they're playing. um, And that's why it works so well when it does work. Yeah, I guess I didn't mean like, there's not like any intentional like Pratt humor or anything like that necessarily, but I do feel like there are moments like when Ricky shows up at Grandma's house, you know, early and she takes him in because she must just think he's like a transient or a homeless guy or something, or I, I don't know what, but like that moment there like feels like they're trying to inject some kind of levity into this and that they kind of realize like this might not be working as a straight horror entirely and that they have this ridiculous ridiculous kind of monster that they're playing with and like they have psychic stuff like there's there's stuff here that that they could play with I think they do not enough but like yeah you're definitely right about them like playing it straight but I feel like they're trying to do some moments to lighten it up. I mean, with Ricky's character design, I think it's impossible to assume that they weren't entirely in on the joke because whoever saw that and said, yeah, that's scary. You know, like either that person knew that it was going to be a little silly or they were completely delusional. I mean, and it is freaky. It's freaky. It's not scary, but I'm freaked out. Are you? Yeah, I I, see. I, I couldn't not laugh at it. Well, like for me, it's just brain stuff, I guess. Like there's a couple brain movies out there too. One, I think like Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton are in it. Um, But like anytime you like show me the brain or stick something in a brain, like I'm going to be like tweaked out. Right. Well, don't don't watch Hannibal. (laughs) Oh, right. Doesn't Ray Liotta eat his own brain? But yeah, I mean, I just I don't I look at it and I couldn't help but laugh just because the the concept was so silly to me. But I, I think there is definitely some balance going on. I think some of it was definitely intended to be funny, but I think for the most part, it's played straight. I think a lot of the, the comedic elements may have been added later when when things weren't working as well as they as they thought it would. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, I would love to I would love to watch like a behind the scenes thing on this movie because it's it's so out of left field that I would love to know how they have settled on this as the sequel for Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 because it's really just a sequel in everything but name. It doesn't feel like it fits, but because it... 
because it technically is a sequel now it's just become part of the canon you know what i mean like we have to rationalize that in our brains as okay well this is part three but it shouldn't be part three i don't know why this movie exists in this franchise it's more if anything a sequel to part two also you know what i mean like it's ricky coming back right like i would love it if we found out that uh, laura was their sister somehow like is she gonna come back in part four like this is literally why i'm gonna go watch it is to see if like her character carries over or if there's some kind of chain like that throughout the films and all that kind of thing because she like you mentioned is like the is the final girl i actually kind of like the final sort of like 20 minute chase around the ranch where the brother fights ricky and we think he's dead but he's not really there's a good movie here with a blind woman and a killer like that's the thing is that i think that's maybe what carries this whole movie is the idea that like it, it's built on a really good foundation yeah you want to know what a, a great movie like that is it's called wait until dark with audrey hepburn i have not seen that one but the the uh the movie that i thought of throughout this was the movie hush oh okay which i mean the the woman in that is deaf so you know she's it, she's dealing with uh, a personal disability against uh, a killer who is going to try to exploit that disability. You know, like so that that's that's where my brain went. But there, I'm sure there are better comparisons to be made. So I think that's what makes this movie ultimately worth checking out is that it does have a really solid premise. I mean, the the psychic aspect of it is a little shaky. But uh, in terms of a, a slasher movie with a killer and a blind girl, like that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Wait until dark school because it's um, like people trying to rob Audrey Hepburn and she's blind. Okay. You know? So there's moments in the film where there's like people in her house and you know what I'm saying? Like she's not, it's really scary in that regard. It's not like a straight up horror film though. But I do like this where there was one moment where I thought her psychic ability paid off really well, where she sort of uh, sees her grandma's force go and telling her to like use her power and then <laughs> when she comes back to reality she bumps into her dead grandma's corpse like i thought that was such a great like a well-written sort of transition <laughs> <laughs> so you know it had its moments yeah I, and, I, and i think overall I mean, aside from the fact that a lot of the kills are off screen and and some of these ideas are a little half-baked i think ultimately yeah these are the things that make this movie worth watching i feel like the the not showing the kills became a part of the joke by the right. end of it you know what i'm saying like oh like we haven't shown him at this point you're never going to get him right i mean it's not the only movie to do that i mean friday the 13th part six is a very tame entry in that franchise like the, the the kills are not as violent as they are in other movies i don't even think there's any nudity in part six they sort of uh dulled it down a little bit so i mean like i i get why they might make that decision it seems to be a weird franchise to make that decision considering its audience. I don't think these movies were um, as nearly as popular. You know, so you're playing to a niche audience already. You just give them what they want. Yeah. And that is kind of about it. I mean, like this this movie, like I said, like I kind of did like the uh, climax here because it sort of results back to a tried and true. Like it, it's a nice sort of conclusion of the killer catching up with her. And, you know, all throughout the movie, I thought it was funny because uh, the first two movies, the killers, they say, you know, no. Naughty, naughty. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And in this one, he's wandering around. And he's going, Laura, Laura, right. because he's psychically like linked to her. And I thought it was a nice touch because I, I figured it would happen. As soon as they met, he dies. 
You know, like it was just his quest to kind of like, where is this coming from? Who is Laura? I must find her. As soon as I do that, I can rest again. So I was like trying to put myself in the <laughs> in the mind of, of Ricky at some point in this movie. Is they're like, what is his motivation? Because like we never get an explanation as to why the doctor is fucking around with him and doing dream therapy kind of stuff. And sure enough, like it seems that at the end of the movie, Ricky lays down and kills himself on that plank of wood in front of Laura. So it seemed like some sort of sweet release moment for him or something where it's like the killer is over and she sure enough gets away. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, that makes the ending a little more satisfactory to me. Uh, in, in my, like As I watched it, it seemed really poorly choreographed and confusing, but we can go <laughs> with your version of it. Sure. I'm always, at this point, always struggling for for something better you know so like i i I conflate these moments in my head right as to like what's missing and then pretend that i see it happening (laughs) right you 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 filled in the gaps in the script that they did the writers didn't do themselves one quick tidbit before we completely wrap this up this is sort of just a, a fun observation that i had because i'm always kind of watching the peripheries i'm watching like what's going on in the world of this movie and in the gas station scene the guy who's who's tending the gas station, he's sitting in his office and he's watching a movie. And I was like, why do I recognize this movie? The, uh, of course, the, the first thing you see is Boris Karloff. And then as, as they keep sort of checking in on this movie, which con- for some reason continues to grandma's house, like they're watching the same movie at grandma's <laughs> house. It, you know, it's a Christmas classic. That Boris Karloff Christmas classic, not the Grinch, but the other one. Right, the completely not... Christmas uh, related. Uh, It's a movie called The Terror and it came out in 1963. It was a Roger Corman produced film also starring Jack Nicholson and and a young Dick Miller. Dick Miller, yep. So I know this movie because I once wrote about it for a website a few years ago. Oh, cool. I was writing a column on sort of like not specifically public domain movies, but anything that was sort of easy to find in one of those big value sets or if it was on YouTube or if it was free somewhere. You know, like I would kind of find these old genre films and I found The Terror. And I was like, okay, so Roger Corman got a director credit for this. But what I didn't realize is that uh, Monty Hellman got a director credit. Uh, He's one of six directors who directed this movie. He also directed Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. And I think that's why he used that particular movie. (laughs) Oh, crap. That's hilarious. I think that's like the most... Is that the most people to direct a film? I know Wizard of Oz had like five... If you go on IMDb, I think only like one is credited, but there's five, but... That's crazy. I can't believe he goes that far back. Actually, The Terror is credited, has has, uh, seven directors credited. At least, again, it's on IMDb. The movie itself only credits Roger Corman. But um, the other six are Francis Ford Coppola, who directed for a couple days, Jack Hale, Monty Hellman, Jack Hill, Dennis Jacob, who did a day of directing, and then the last day of production was directed by Jack Nicholson. <laughs> wow! How about that? <laughs> so, if for nothing else, uh, I want to I want to uh, recommend to the listeners like go check out the Terror from 1963. It is it is not terrible. Uh, I mean, it's not great. It's uh, you know early 60s Roger Corman. Well, yeah, it's total drive-in style kind of thing. 
100%. And to see a young Jack Nicholson is is pretty fun. And if I remember correctly, I think I gave this one um, a pretty fair shake in terms of what I had to say about it. Well, that's a really great sort of like, you know, to see Jack Nicholson and Boris Karloff in the same film together. Is that, like... that was the draw for me when I heard that there was a movie that had Boris Karloff and Jack Nicholson. I was like, I got to see it. That's a gift everyone can give for Christmas this year. Yeah, hundred percent. Like that—that that to me was the like the fun little Easter egg within Silent Night, Deadly Night three that I could never have imagined would be in there. That's awesome. I noticed that too, and I love that. So I'm glad you picked up on that. Of course, being my horror consultant, I would expect no less from you. So <laughs> if I didn't know what that movie was, I was gonna look it up because my first, like, as soon as I saw Boris Karloff, I'm like. I made the note. I was like, I got to find out what this movie is with Boris Karloff. And then I saw Jack Nicholson. I was like, wait a minute. This is the terror. Okay, got it. But yeah, I'm always watching the background for those uh, for those sorts of details. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for tonight. We can rewrap this gift and re-gift it to someone else now, perhaps. Um, but uh, Dan, thank you for joining me as always, especially uh, during this holiday season for Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Better watch out. I look forward to having you back on again in the new year. I wish you a happy new year and all the best. Is there anything you'd like to say, any parting words you'd like to give for the end of the year here on Third Time's a Charm? I mean, I just I hope everybody uh, has a really happy holiday and um, a great New Year's. And I'm uh, looking forward to 2020. Should be a lot of fun. I'm not sure what uh, I will be back for. Um, we haven't yet discussed that. Oh well, I could tell you. I could tell you. I don't know exactly when, but I will. I will send you my uh, my new schedule. But I will tell you one thing, just to sort of get you maybe a little excited for the new year. Uh, I, we are finally, you and I, going to talk about Back to the Future. <laughs> this has been a long time coming. I feel like uh, uh, we both got a lot to say about that franchise, and I'm going to get to some heavy hitters next year. So Back to the Future three for sure. I cannot wait to get into Back to the Future with you, Mike. So, I guess I'll see you next year and uh, I'll talk to you soon. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Santa's watching, Santa's creeping, now you're nodding, now you're sleeping. Were you good for mom and dad? Santa knows if you've been bad. Carpet's day! That it's gonna do it for... Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 3, and I just gotta thank my horror consultant, Dan of the Dead Cologne, for joining me for this holiday horror Christmas kill fest. I don't know what else to call it, really, but it was a lot of fun. Always a good time talking to Dan. The crazy movie. Happy holidays, folks. From uh, everyone here at Third Time's a Charm, which is just me, so from me, but everyone else at the Cage Club Network. And for all things Cage Club, Third Time's a Charm, and all the other 27, 6, 7, some, 20 some odd shows that we got going on over there at the network, go to cageclub.me. You could also go to facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Find all the shows, find the back episodes of this show. Uh, other great shows, The Legendary Monkey Club. Oh, all the shows I do with uh, co-founder Joey over there. So we got Cage, we got Keanu, we got Charlize, we got Shia, we got in the middle of Hanks for the Memory. So we got Cruz and Hanks going on right now every other Friday. Fridays are for fun. Fridays are for fun. If you didn't know that too, that's something. Yeah, you know, also we've got <laughs> Viva Pod Vegas, the Elvis podcast that Joey and I have finally decided to roll out little by little, but look for that as well. Oh, also don't forget to write me at 
T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me and uh, find me anywhere you can find podcasts on the interweb. So all those tubes that go all over the place that you can't see that's trapped inside your computer and such, like that's where this show, you know, that's where we live. So go find me there. That's my house. So and just in case I'm not back with a mid-month episode, I want to say to everybody, have a great new year. It's been a crazy 2019, a lot of fun shows. A lot of great discussions, uh, not so many great movies, but still a lot of fun. So I just want to say thank you, and have a safe and happy holiday, and I'll talk to you soon. Three, that's a magic number. Three. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three may stub at me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean? Garbage day!